Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. I'm Ahmed Patel filling in as guest host for Kim Kushner. Very excited to welcome to the show, Dr. Greg Fury, a very good friend of mine and someone that I've known for more than 20 years and have worked together at several different organizations. He has a very impressive career in the pharmaceutical and biotech sector and has held many different senior level roles, including founder, CEO, and CMO. Very trusted advisor and also considered a very respected thought leader in the drug safety and pharmacovigilance community. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Amit and Ramin. Good to be here with you. Welcome. Great. So I definitely didn't do your bio justice, Greg. You know, it would be great if, if you could provide a brief overview of your career path and specifically your career path in into the drug safety and PV space and to where you are now. So the um, how I ended up in safety is, I guess, a little bit of an interesting story. I was training in uh, internal medicine and went into a pulmonary fellowship up in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And at the time, many of my colleagues had transitioned into sort of, I guess, non-traditional medical careers. And remember, this is going back 25 years, um, and that was much less commonplace than it is today. So I started to explore what else was out there, you know, where else I could learn new skills and stumbled across McKinsey and Company uh, and subsequently joined the company a couple of years um, into my fellowship in pulmonary. So I never even completed the pulmonary fellowship. While I was at McKinsey, I learned, you know, quite a bit. And as I started to look into my next step, the pharmaceutical industry made a lot of sense to me. And I ended up having a conversation, as many of us do, with a recruiter, uh, recruiter who really caught my attention around a very unique role at a large pharmaceutical company who had just acquired another pharmaceutical company. And they had, you know, budgets in many of the different functions to complete the integration activities, but the pharmacovigilance department did not have such a budget at that time. And I had to look up the word pharmacovigilance because I really didn't know what it was actually back then. And, um, you know, and the job really was, was a hybrid of a medical role, pharmacovigilance physician, but also really taking the lead on the integration activities. So it sounded great. It was in a, a you know wonderful city, and I made the move into that company. Very shortly after I joined, the uh, project sort of got put on hold for a bit, the integration project, and immediately I had to dive in very deeply into the pharmacovigilance activities and learn about the you know single case reports and periodic safety update reports. So that was my introduction. Great. Uh, thanks. Thank you, um, Greg, for your background. Um, I feel a lot better that I wasn't the only one that joined the industry and couldn't, didn't know what pharmacovigilance was. I couldn't even spell it. I have to go look it up and learn and learn from my friends. Although I, I have never worked in pharmacovigilance. Um, when do you think um, is the best time to start thinking about uh, drug safety in 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 our industry? Um, you, you have a lot of experience with the startups and small biotech companies. Um, and when, when is when is the right time to start thinking about drug safety? Is it uh, the beginning of phase one? Is it once you start uh, with phase two, or is it later? Um, what are your some of your thoughts there and advice? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and this is one that we often hear. And the answer, I think, is as early as possible. And to use that cliche, 
But I can definitely see, so having been in the head of safety role, CMO, and even CEO role in these companies that are at early stages, I can see how some of the thinking around uh, safety and pharmacovigilance and, and more around the operational side of that really can sort of get swept up in the onboarding of CROs and thinking about clinical sites, enrollment, and some of the activities that would seem to be you know, much more on the radar screen of the investors, let's say, in the outside world. Um, the reality, though, is that the earlier one thinks about and invests in a safety process and a safety system, uh, the more dividends that early thinking pays downstream. And, you know, there are many examples, but I think that some of the easiest examples to come up with is using a single centralized database and, and uh, service provider allows a company really to focus on areas um, that are more core to the CROs typically where safety is usually a little bit less core to most of the CROs that we use. Also having a single integrated database with a single set of processes allows for the coding and codification of the safety information to be done in a very uniform way across the entire product lifecycle so that when we're performing analyses, we have an integrated database. When we go back to search for certain things, we don't have to remember how we used to code things, uh, how information was handled you know, in a legacy clinical trial. So again, I think the earlier, the better. Although if, if that, uh, that type of attention wasn't paid early on, all is not lost because I think we have some pretty tried and true ways to jump in really at any stage in the process, think through first data integration and then potentially database integration in order to have that single system, which, which is absolutely required in the post-marketing setting. Yeah, great, great points, Greg. And then, uh, you know, when we're talking about the safety systems, now, how, how do you see them evolving within an organization in their development life cycle? Like you mentioned, you know, in the clinical stage, but is it different in the clinical stage setting, preclinical, uh, and then post-marketing? And, you know, how does all that fit in together and, in regards, and also in regards to the structure and how that's uh, framed is, in, you know, we'd love for you to talk about the hybrid model as well as, in, you know, in terms of internal versus external. And many times we think of PV being outsourced, but that's not always the case because it's very typical a hybrid model and many times it's on one extreme versus another, but you got to find that right balance in terms of, you know, what is that right, right type of model in terms of uh, an organizational structure. Yep. These are all the, these are all the things that we face, right? Uh, the, the, the questions and challenges. So I think starting with your first point around how to sort of build a safety profile, build a safety process through the life cycle even starting as early preclinical as, again, you know, one would be thoughtful about that. The, we'd like to borrow the terminology really from the European system, these important identified and important potential risks. So I think in the, in the um, you know, non-clinical activities we perform prior to entering humans, we really can get a reasonably good sense of what might be predictable based on a couple of different factors related to the specific compound we're working with, as well as similar compounds that may uh, be generating data that we may have access to or may even be approved in some cases. So starting to think very early about what we should really be looking for, always with our eyes wide open to things that we didn't anticipate, that we do see, and not waiting you know, for, uh, for any real period of time to pass before we recognize those and act on them. But that's really, I think, the best practice. So starting very early, building that list of the important potential and identified risks, and then thinking about how we're going to maybe actively survey the work we do to flesh out whether these really are, um, whether they do exist for our product, or we can say it wasn't a potential, but actually it's not happening with our product. 
or to better characterize the ones that we do recognize as, as realized risk for our product and then thinking about how significant they are, how they may affect the benefit risk balance once we understand you know, how effective our product is and then what in that case we might do to mitigate those things. That's how I would say, you know, again, best practice starting very early, building that profile, refining that profile very actively throughout the life cycle of the product, uh, and including that gets us ready really to submit risk management plans or to prepare draft labeling for our interactions with health authorities. And, and Greg, when, when you're talking about starting very early, do you, do you start actually building that function and hiring people coming on board? Do you outsource at that point? And how do you how do you how do you balance the kind of your own employees and headcounts versus outsourcing as as you evolve through the drug development stages? Yeah, the um, so and and it gets back to to I may use the the word hybrid. So really, what we see, I would say, uniformly across the industry is that there's some capabilities in house and some capabilities that are handled by third party providers. And the third-party providers really, we can, you know, span a spectrum of, of um, contribution, I would say, from those that, that are acting exactly like the, like the sponsor and for all the world, one couldn't even tell the difference, and those that are really acting at an arm's length to provide uh, a set of services that requires lots of oversight from the sponsor. So we even as early on as as we mentioned in the non-clinical setting it's often very helpful to have someone who really thinks specifically about the evolving safety profile of the product what their title is or what their specific role is you know within the company is is really i'd say uh, you know all over the map but having someone who wakes up and thinks about that sort of activity um, at least part of their time, I think, serves companies quite well because that's the best way to not miss anything. And, you know, the, I think we use a little bit of a cliche that says our goal in safety is to ensure that no one is exposed to a product uh, beyond the point after which they shouldn't be exposed to the product. And it sounds, it sounds a little bit strange, but if we're very actively reviewing all the data that's coming in and developing a deep understanding of the evolving profile, as soon as we hit the point where we say, wait a second, we need to stop, then we would stop. And it wouldn't be six months later, it wouldn't be 12 months later. So having people that work on that very early on, I think makes a lot of sense. When it comes to the, the, the sourcing model, the, high, you know, the, the balance and the hybrid nature of the model, the, anytime we have sort of a large volume of activities that are being handled outside the company, it's really important, I would say, required for the sponsor company, we'll use that term, to invest in at least a, a very well-qualified internal resource to ensure that, you know, first of all, the, the outsource provider is proficient in the activities they're being asked to do. Sometimes that's not so easy to tell before, you know, they really get in and start working. And then also to ensure that the provider is performing to the standard you know, to the initial standard that was set for them. So I think that there's always a hybrid model, even when there's a large amount of outsourcing. And I think there's this the shift from, from more inside, less outside, or more outside, less inside, depends on a lot of factors, not the least of which is the philosophy of, of management of the company. So I think it's a little bit hard to say there's a cookie cutter model, 
but it's quite straightforward when we get in there and we interview leadership and we understand what their investors are thinking. You know, everyone wants to do the best job in safety, but and there are many ways to do it correctly. And we usually try to tailor an approach that really fits with the philosophy and the management style, the um, the capital structure of the company and the available resources uh, for safety. Good, good points, Greg. And, you know, I, I think you talked a lot, you know, you definitely talked a lot, lot about bringing in safety early. But in many organizations, you know, we work with many, um, you know, it seems like safety is sometimes deprioritized and becomes very reactive and proactive. So how do you, how do you get buy-in from senior leaders and senior leadership uh, to help build that culture of safety very early on in the organization for all the reasons that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. These are great questions you have. Thank you. Um, but <laughs> that, yeah, and I, I know you use the word deprioritize. You didn't mean deprioritize, but just sometimes it doesn't get the doesn't get the attention, right? So, and I think that really that's the that's all that's required. So when we get into a company, or when we are in a company, or we start a company, um, once we start to have the conversations about the requirements and safety, and think about what's been done and things that maybe haven't been done, almost uniformly, leadership says, "Geez, well, we don't want that." It, and and also most of the time, it's not that fewer resources than we want are focusing on safety. And, and I know you, you both know this. Most of the time, it's actually the opposite. Everybody's looking at the safety information. Many people are copied on things. Many people participate in meetings. It's just not really usually anyone's job specifically. So everyone's nervous about it because they don't know who's accountable for it. So they, they try to participate and it's just, it's not the best way to uh, to achieve our goals, not the most efficient way. But once we start to have conversations, people say, yeah, I would love it if somebody took this off everyone's plate and really focused on it and somebody we trusted to do it well and informs us of things that need to be communicated and you know, everybody basically sleeps better at night. So that's more often what we see um, in these companies that haven't necessarily carved out a, a role for safety. And and to that to that point, Greg, how do you? I mean, safety, especially safety. There there are other there are other functions like safety too, but they're really seen as a cost center, right? And, and a cost to the organization. And typically, the CEOs or the senior management will like to invest that money in somewhere else, especially if they're early on in in the um, in the uh, life of the company. Um, how do you how do you make them think as that this safety could be more actually in a strategic value down the road. What conversation do you carry with? And, and it could be, honestly, it could be the board as well. The board of directors may not quite be there too. They say you're four or five years away from, you know, maybe launch, maybe you're three years away, even from the first patient uh, getting the compound. What are we doing thinking about safety right now? Uh, we need to be worried about the funding. We need to worry about our managing our costs and things like that. How do you, how do you overcome that conversation and that challenge? So I, I would say, you know, two two specific ways that come to mind. One way is in a setting where we have we have sufficient amount of time for education or a very educated and willing audience. And the other is the opposite when we have neither of those situations. So in the former where we have um, time to educate or a willing or educated audience already, we basically just bring it to their attention that we, we know their ethical responsibilities, you know, human responsibilities, right? We need to be tracking the safety profile because people are receiving these products and we have obligations to them and also um, regulatory responsibilities. 
So we have a lot of reason to do this well. And if it's a, you know, if we have time for that, sometimes some of that people don't really understand. And frankly, much of the time, the education is around not so much that the work needs to be done. It's just that it should be done by people who really focus on that type of work. Because a lot of this in the early stage just lives, it's just embedded within clinical teams. You know, the work's getting done, people are processing safety information, people are thinking about investigator brochures, and, and the education is really around making sure that, that um, it, it receives a sufficient resource and priority. And, it, and that typically works. The other end of the spectrum is where there isn't a lot of time or people may be more resistant, they may be more resource constrained. And then, you know, sometimes we just rely on basic benchmarking. We say the size of your regulatory team, roughly the size of quality, that's the size of safety. And people sometimes can say, okay, I may not have thought that before, but if that's how I should think about it, it's easier for me to, to uh, you know, perform my budgeting activities. And that. Now, if you have a company that's running large phase three trials, let's say, you know, has it half of an FTE and GCP quality, you may want to uh, be knowledgeable about that before jumping in. And, and maybe there's a little bit more of a holistic strategy that's required to ensure that all of those obligations are being met and not just safety. So, you know, those are a couple of the ways. Obviously, there's a lot of detail we could go into. So, so Greg, te technology has always been a very big part of drug safety, right? Um, and more so now than at any other time before. And, you know, I was at a couple of drug safety conferences earlier this year. And, you know, a very hot topic right now is AI and ChatGPT and how we're going to use artificial intelligence in, in the PV space specifically on, you know, look, looking at and managing the safety profile of an asset. Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts around that um, and, and to see and, and really understand where, where you think this could potentially go. Sure. Definitely, you know, huge area of focus. And actually, it's been on the radar screen of safety for a long time. Uh, we were involved in some projects actually many years ago where we were trying to use um, the, the then current version of AI thinking to, to do some very basic things within safety, just like maybe looking at literature reports, trying to pull adverse events out and simplify some of the activities that are very resource intensive. Literature searching is a great example because if we perform in some cases weekly, sometimes less frequently literature searches, there can be many, many articles published um, that are swept into these, these search results. And for to have someone go through even the abstracts can really take a lot of time. And usually those are uh, quite skilled individuals, um, you know, at a bit of a high price point. So this, this can impact budgets. Um, the, the prior approaches didn't really get a lot of traction for a variety of different reasons that I think are probably rooted in the, the deeply regulated nature of safety and the conservative nature of safety. So putting those two things together, not only would companies have to feel like they've got sort of a zero defect process uh, in place so that things aren't being missed, but then they would also feel like they need to adequately communicate that to a potentially skeptical external audience in the health authorities. And so the past um, efforts that I had seen really didn't get too much traction. I think more currently, um, the, there, I would say that there has to be a lot more promise. I've used some of these things, uh, some of these systems now where we can upload documents and, and really ask the system to do things that would take humans. And I think we've all done this, right? right? a lot of time. 
But the question for the healthcare applications, I think, is probably going to be relevant in safety. So in the healthcare applications, I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues that are working, I'd say, quite deeply in AI applications in sort of patient care. And the concern there is these very outlier answers that sometimes come come out of the system. And, and people don't yet understand, although I think they're making some headway, don't yet understand the circumstances in which these outlier um, uh, answers are really produced. And so they continue to require a lot of manual oversight and a lot of manual intervention. And I would guess that's probably going to be similar in, in safety because, again, the, you know, we cannot have, I don't, I don't think it's really acceptable to try to communicate a system to a, to a stringent external regulatory audience that might just miss big things or produce answers that are completely out of context. We would need to ensure against that. And I don't yet think we have the tools. People may know more, but that's my, you know, sort of first glance look. Right. I think there's still a lot to figure out as we go forward, especially when it comes to safety and, and AI, which gets a little bit, a lot more complicated than just the AI in other parts of the healthcare. Um, I think um, when you're dealing with uh, with side effects and address events, and there's um, there's that complexity there uh, that needs to be captured. Yeah, the flip side, I will say though, and this is the this is the part that we always kind of scratch our heads over is the flip side is sometimes I'm I may be you know involved in a committee where we have to review data and receive you know sometimes thousands of pages of data, and so. There's obvious room for error there when we're asking humans to review thousands of pages of error uh, of data and, and avoid errors. So, so um, you know, but but that's still what I've seen in safety. That reality still um, isn't seen as a as a or hasn't been at least in the experiences I've had seen as a significant enough driver to implement more technical tools that may themselves have some sort of a quantifiable error rate. I'm not sure why, but that's just what I've seen. I think that seems to be like the trend going forward. Um, I think companies and, and experts want to figure out how they can actually um, augment their efforts by using the AI and, and what's that right play for the AI. Everybody knows that they, they, they can bring tremendous value, but where and how still is kind of being figured out and, and it may take uh, years before we we have it really harnessed. Yeah, I think also those systems, as I'm just thinking out loud here, is that the regulated nature of the databases we use in safety is pretty stringent, right? The, the requirements for validation and that. I'm not sure I've seen a lot, and I've seen a few AI-based systems that just haven't been built you know, to that standard necessarily because they're doing, and I think that's maybe because we're so early in the life cycle of these technologies, there's a lot of refinement and repetition and, you know, I guess the word is refinement of the of not only the data models but the analytic tools and you know on the safety side we don't refine things too often we want something that's validated and that's what it is and see us in two years <laughs> so so maybe there's a there's an element of that that we'd need to overcome. I think you're right we are in the earliest stages so there's, there's a lot a lot to still kind of figure out um, one uh, one other thing, as you were talking about uh, drug safety and and pharmacovigilance, that came to my mind that I want to ask you is about what would be that one piece of advice that you will have to some people that that they are interested? Maybe they already know how to spell pharmacovigilance. Maybe they even know what it is, but uh, they're interested in pharmacovigilance. 
Uh, I mean, first of all, I guess what's what's the profile type of, of a candidate for pharmacovigilance, and what, what would be that advice you have for somebody who is interested? That's that's an interesting one because I I would say that um, there really is something for everyone in the world of safety and pharmacovigilance. I'm using those terms interchangeably. Some people say pharmacovigilance, so we need to <laughs> be sensitive to that as well. So I think there's something for everyone. So there is some because safety is is a very regulated set of activities, and the safety regulations often fall outside the scope of a traditional regulatory affairs sort of function within a company. So there's opportunity there for someone who has an affinity for regulation to really become a subject matter expert in the regulations around safety. So there's, that's sort of one thing for people who like that. I think there's you know, deeply analytic activities that we perform within safety. So people who are more comfortable with the data and the analysis of data, the summarization of data, potentially publication, I think there's something for uh, for people who have that sort of affinity. And then for people who, who want to be involved more in the strategic side of the company, driving clinical trials design, driving potential product labeling, thinking about different applications of, of um, you know, pharmaceutical products, there's that piece as well. So I have definitely seen the, the, um, the, I guess the analytic side, at least in my 20 plus years, has really always been there. I think that's what way back when safety was relied upon to do. The regulatory side has ramped up dramatically over the past 15 or 20 years, you know, with regulations both in, in US and in Europe, really, um, I, I actually think they're excellent regulatory frameworks, but there's been substantial growth in sort of the regulatory requirements. And then more recently, I would say the opportunity really to have influence on the company, you know, the strategy at a corporate level has found its way, you know, on the radar screen of safety. And I think safety uh, experts are now really do have a seat at the table with the most senior leaders and companies when the most important decisions are being made. So something for everyone. So, so Greg, th thanks so much for being on the show today. But, you know, before we sign off here, we'd love to see if you have any other closing remarks or closing thoughts and, you know, some takeaways for, for the audience here. Yeah, I, again, really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today to talk about a topic that I fell in love with, you know, 20 plus years ago, for whatever reason, I just developed a strong love for safety and pharmacovigilance and have spent a lot of time, you know, helping people within the function to understand that it really um, provides such a broad access to the activities going on pre-marketing and post-marketing that a strong base in safety really can allow someone to springboard wherever they you know, develop interest in the industry. So if anybody has any questions or wants to speak further about that, please feel free to get in touch with us and uh, we'd be happy to provide any insights. Yeah, absolutely. Please leave a comment. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming uh, and uh, being with us today. Thank you both. Great. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.